This morning comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place uh, there in these days? He asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women in our, of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? The beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near to the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay, stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were our, not, were our hearts not burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Mm -hmm. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Wes. Aloha. How are we doing this morning? Happy Easter to you. Just like Wes said, Easter, it's Easter tide. Easter is 50 days. It's a, it's a week of Sundays between now and Pentecost. And I'm so glad because I think Scripture gives us so many angles and handles on what the resurrection could look like, that there, there's something for everybody. But before I start preaching, may I just say right now, happy birthday to my lovely bride, Jen Case. This is her birthday today. That's right. Indeed. Happy birthday, Jen. Love you. Um, so what, where was I? Okay, Easter. Easter. Um, 
And so these next few Sundays, we're going to just delve into all these risen Christ stories, mysterious, um, funny, odd uh, stories that we're going to hear. And I I hope that you'll hear your name or maybe that you'll see a new angle to what it means to be God's Easter people, resurrection people. And today, it's all around the meal. Now, some of you came Thursday night to our Monday Thursday service where we shared a bunch of great homemade soups in round tables, and we practiced a love feast, which happened in the early, um, of early American Methodism when there weren't enough ordained clergy around. They would, you would have love feasts, and they always involved a lot of good food and some sort of affirmation. John Wesley got this from these people called, from the Moravian Church, and uh, whom he was very impressed with um, in some of his experiences as, as an American missionary in the early 1700s. A love feast. So the day of Easter, Easter day. Now we're a week out from Easter, the day of resurrection. But in the, as far as the text is concerned, we're, we're that late that afternoon, right? Where Jesus appeared to a few people, but there are a couple of fans, followers of Jesus, walking from Jerusalem back to their home in Emmaus. And it is the saddest walk you can imagine. They saw their Savior die on a cross, tortured, um, because of, of uh, collusion between um, the highest religious leaders and also the, uh, the government leaders. And they, they saw him get tortured. They saw him die a slow death on the cross, and their hopes were dashed. And so Cleopas and Cleopas's friend, I don't know, I don't, we don't even know if Cleopas is a, is a man or a woman or... It might have been a couple walking home. We don't know. We just know that they were part of Jesus' followers and their world had ended. This is not how they thought it would be that Easter afternoon walking home. A stranger comes up in their midst and, um, and asks them, says, uh, what are you talking about? And they said, uh, you know, we, we've, we, we've lost our, uh, we've lost our Savior. We've lost Jesus. And he he said, well, well, what is the news? I mean, and then they sort of get on to him, right? They, they say, gosh, have you been under a rock the last three days? Our Savior died. And they said, we had hope that he would redeem Israel. Now, we had hope. Those are the saddest among the saddest three words in all of the Bible. I mean, when you talk about hope being in the past tense, you are in a dark, difficult place. And I, I know some of you have been there before. But the stranger keeps walking with them to Emmaus and says, gosh, you're acting foolish. Did did you not read the scriptures? And then all of a sudden, this stranger begins opening up, having a Bible study, walking on the way back to Emmaus, and begins to talk about why this Jesus suffered and and that that would not be the end. And and they taught them. and, And all of a sudden, they're right there toward the end of the day, and this stranger continues to walk on when these two people, they do the decent thing. In fact, they do the honorable, virtuous thing in that, that time and place, which is um, they asked him to stay for dinner. Well, it's, the day's almost done. Do you want to just, we've got some 
tuna fish and some, you know, some bread. We don't have a fancy meal, but come on and join us. And so this stranger, Jesus in great disguise, takes the bread. He blesses it. He breaks the bread. And all of a sudden it says in Scripture, their eyes are opened. And then he vanishes. And then they are so excited and so pumped that they jog back seven miles, back uphill to Jerusalem where the disciples are saying, saying, we have seen the risen Lord. Now, Easter people, what can we get from this story? Maybe one is that sometimes... You know, it's nice to have somebody help you work your way through the Bible, right? <laughs> they were a little bit, you know, nothing beats a good Bible study. And, uh, and the scriptures, which were memorized by Jesus and them, they didn't carry a big Bible around with them, right? That would be about 400 years. Well, no, that would be like printing press time. So uh, they didn't have any paper. They didn't have any ink. But Jesus just shared with them what was going on. And, and maybe, that, maybe they picked up their pace. So it could be that, hey, you know, take advantage of a good Bible study um, when you can find one. It's always good to keep learning. The second thing, though, is this. They shared hospitality with a stranger, and that's how Jesus opened their eyes. They shared hospitality with a stranger. Easter people, Parkway Heights, if there's one thing that we need to do and do well, that is to feed people, right? And we do it well. We've got the casserole brigade. Any of y'all ever, ever had a good casserole by one of our casserole people? It is the best thing you ever put in your mouth. And you know, food and meals, they're not always. You can't force them to be. But meals are emotional, deeply emotional, and so when someone here loses a loved one or is going through a really difficult time, we've always got the casserole brigade to feed them after the service. Or like this year, one of our members knew that uh, this woman's husband was in the hospital during Christmas. So in February, she called them and said, I know that you never got a Christmas dinner. You're going to have Christmas in February. And she came over and she lavished them with a Christmas meal. There is something about a meal. Now, I know that sometimes we wish every meal were sacred and beautiful and awesome. They're not always that way. But many of them are. I can think of many times around a table in a meal where life began to like, like time just stood still. And the amount of love and conversation around a table was like, I felt like I was in heaven. My grandparents' table on Storm Avenue, I remember them hosting so many different kinds of people right around that table. It always had a real nice, thick, clear tablecloth, you know, so that you couldn't spill, because all the grandkids were always spilling stuff all the time. No problem, Nanny said. No big deal. And she'd, she'd get it up. I remember great meals there and other places. What about your meal? Where did your Emmaus meal come from? You remember maybe being where time just kind of stood still? You know, it's, it's biblical, and it goes even before Jesus. Before Jesus was a stranger and before this walk to Emmaus, Abraham and Sarah 
were there in the oaks of Mamre, it says in Genesis 18. And uh, they were still trying to process this ridiculous dream of an old couple having a baby. It just didn't make much sense to them. All of a sudden, three people kind of walk up, right? And, uh, and Abraham does what you should do. He can I feed you? You know, and goes in, goes in, hey, do we have any flour? Can we make some cornbread? Can we do something? He goes to one of his servants, and they get a real plump calf, and they have a big, big meal. And that's when these three angels, unaware, I guess, told Abram that you and Sarah, the next time we come and visit you, Sarah's going to have a baby. And what did Sarah do? She laughed. She sure did. Was that, your, was that Sarah laughing? Oh, no, I wasn't laughing, she said. But what would have happened, though? I mean, this whole blessing comes out of the blessing of hospitality, of being the casserole brigade. There are very, very few places in this world where you can break bread and really feel truly welcome in this world. The church can be one of them. Hopefully it often is just to break bread in homes or at church during times is a great Easter act of hospitality. Wes led us after his prayer into the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Now part of that is, uh, is simply simple dependence upon God our Father to provide for our needs in good times and in bad times. That's one thing. But you see, that was also a revolutionary thing to pray and to say. Because Rome, the Roman Empire, wanted to be your breadwinner. And they would come through the cities and throw food out of parade-like things to feed people. And it was as if they said, we've got something greater than even the Roman Empire. We've got a different kingdom that we belong to, and we can depend on God. When we say Psalm 23, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runneth over. Give us this day our daily bread. How, this is my, this is my question, how does God create hospitality in your life? What is your version of pull up a chair? Come have a burger, have a meal. When does that happen in your life? Because when that happens, Easter has a chance to happen. You're making yourself open to the risen Christ, to those who are around you. When does it happen? There was a seminary professor who tells a story of visiting Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and he was having a he was, he was at a big breakfast stop there, and he noticed, he noticed out of the corner of his eye that there was a, there was a distinguished kind of gray-haired uh, gentleman that was making the rounds to every table. And he was like, oh my gosh. He said, Winnie, I sure hope they don't come to our table. He comes. Hey, how you doing? Where are you from? We're from Oklahoma. And what do you do? That's a preacher's worst question. It's like, big, you know, target right on your face. I'm a preacher, right? And so that's what he said. Well, I'm a preacher, but I, I teach preaching in a seminary in Oklahoma. He said, preacher, he pulled up a chair and sat across from them. I got a story for you. He pointed out 
in Gatlinburg, out toward a valley there, and he said, right there in the valley, a few decades ago, there was a young boy who was born to an unwed mother. And everywhere that boy went, they would ask him, who's your daddy? And he didn't know what to say. And he felt the scorn of every community he lived in, he told him. He didn't want to go to stores. He didn't want to go out to eat. He didn't want to go anywhere. Well, there was a new preacher coming to town, he said. And the new preacher didn't know about this boy and his mom. And as they, as they walked out of the, of, of the church, they couldn't quite sneak out. And there were people who were lining up. And there's that boy coming to him. And all of a sudden, the preacher asked the question, who's your, who's your dad? And the whole church got quiet. And he said that preacher looked around and realized what was going on. And he said, ah, I see the resemblance. You are a child of the Most High God. You have a great inheritance. You claim it and you name it. And that guy stood up from that table, that unassuming meal, and he said, if that preacher hadn't said that to me as a boy, I don't know where I would have been. And all of a sudden, another waitress came up and was wiping off the table, and she asked that, that seminary professor, says, you know who that is? He said, no. She said, that's Ben Hooper, the former governor of the state of Tennessee. He didn't plan that meal, but he let the guy come over. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Easter broke out at that table. And whenever you break the bread and share a meal and remind somebody that they're a child of the Most High God, however you do it, Easter can happen. Jesus can show up. We tell ourselves stories in order to live, the late Joan Didion said. We tell ourselves good stories in order to live well. We tell ourselves Jesus stories in order to live Jesus' lives. And I want you to know that you're armed with the greatest gift that a person can give, and that is this. You have a chance this week, this month, this year, to offer someone the miracle of hospitality. I don't know how good of a cook you are. I don't know where it's going to happen. But be ready. Maybe even in one of your darkest days, you will recognize and your eyes will be open that the one who blesses and breaks the bread is the risen Christ himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for your hospitality. Thank you, oh God, for your aloha. <laughs> thank you, God, for reminding us that we belong to the Most High God. Lord, give this church the gift of radical hospitality. Help us to know that even a simple meal can turn in to a Eucharistic feast where we recognize you in our very presence. Give us eyes to see, Lord, so that we too might celebrate and break your bread. Amen.